Thanks again, worship team. That does make all the difference in the world, doesn't it? That he's alive. Amen? All right, well, if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Uh, we're back into the, uh, the 11th hour series here. And uh, the reason we call it the 11th hour is because we're talking about the events that happen near the end of everything that's planned in history, of human history. We're talking about those things that are, are, that are happening at the 11th hour. And the more I look at the world around me, I'm curious whether or not we are actually approaching those days. Anyone else ever feel that way? You read the book of Revelation and think, boy, that, that sure sounds like, like it could be right around the corner. And that's what we find today. So as you, as you turn to Revelation chapter 6, I want you to put your bulletin there or a finger there or something. Because before we jump into chapter 6, which is where we start to unveil uh, the, the seven sealed scroll and that describe the events of the tribulation. Um, I want to remind you that Jesus already told John something about the tribulation. If you go all the way back, so keep a finger in Revelation, but to Mark chapter 13. In Mark chapter 13, and this is not going to be the, the, the passage, I'm not going to preach through Mark, but I want you to catch this backdrop to understand what John already knew and where, where we're headed from this. So uh, let's look at, at, uh, at Mark 13, starting at verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Uh, if you read uh, Matthew's version and, and uh, uh, Luke's version of the same, same story too, they were looking at these buildings and they were impressed. And they saw these big, the, the, the temple was beautiful and the buildings surrounding it, they were just beautiful buildings and they were impressed. And um, then Jesus answered and said unto them, uh, in verse 2, or said unto him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Remind that Jesus could see not just the present, like what we see, but Jesus was able to see the future as well. And he saw the future, and he looked at all of these big buildings, and as impressive as they seemed to the disciples, they say, Every single one of these stones, I see them thrown off the ledge here, and they're, they're gone. In fact, uh, that's exactly what ended up happening in 70 AD, right? So Jesus saw what, was saw what would happen, and uh, he knew what it was like, and they actually took all, every stone from those buildings, and they, they carried it to the ledge. So the, the Temple Mount is built on a, a huge rock as well, and so the, what you actually see here is the wall. Those are, that's carved to look like part of the wall, and the walls went up from there. They took all of the stones that are actually part of these buildings, and they shoved them right off of that, and there they are to this day. By the way, I say that because it's important to note, does Jesus know what he's talking about? When Jesus says something's going to happen in the future, no matter how unlikely it might seem, it happens. Now let's keep that in mind when we, uh, we look at the follow-up conversation that took place thereafter. Uh, look at verse 3. Now as he sat at the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. Notice John. This is the same John that wrote the book of Revelation was with them. And they said, tell us, uh, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? They wanted to know. Verse 5, and Jesus, answering them, began to say, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. What's he saying? There's going to be some bad times. 
but not as bad as what we're talking about when I get to the end. There will be times you're going to think it's so bad, this must be it, but it's not it. Verse 8. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. By the way, beginning of sorrows is kind of a Greek expression, and it, it means labor pains, right? Now, if you've ever been present, I've been present for, for the birth of my kids. Uh, labor pains is excruciating, it is, it is difficult, and it was even harder on Monica. Yeah, it was, it was not, not, yeah, and uh, no, she's sick today, so she, doesn't, she didn't get to hear that, so I can still stay at home tonight. But, uh, but uh, you know, the labor pains, what are, those, are, those are not good, but those lead to something great, and that's the imagery that Jesus leaves us. Things are going to get bad, but just when you think, boy, this is as bad as it's going to get, you're going to find out those were just, those are just the labor pains, and it's going to get worse. Verse 9. It says, but watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for, for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. What I think is really interesting here is in the comfort that Jesus gives to them, the comfort was not in, hey, when, you, when these bad times come, you're going to escape the bad times. He doesn't say that. In fact, it doesn't sound very comforting at the beginning because he says, this is what you have waiting for you. You're going to be beaten. You're going to, have, you're going to be betrayed by family members. And, and, and many of you are going to die. Like, Thanks, Lord, for the encouragement today, right? And, and he's saying, but he who endures to the end will be saved. It goes on to say in uh, verse 14, so when, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel... Uh, the prophet's uh, standing where it ought not. And he says in parentheses, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Remember when we studied the book of Daniel and we, we had the prediction of the first Antichrist? And it ended up predicting to the date and in, in, in purpose, everything was, all these, all these predictions came completely true about Antiochus Epiphanes. And the abomination of desolation was when a pig was offered on the sacrifice that belongs to the Lord. And so such a, a blasphemous act. And when that happened, you know that, that the, the, the bad things were about to happen. And so Israel suffered a, a, a miniature holocaust. I say miniature only because it's nothing compared to what the final one's going to be. But they went through the uh, first of multiple holocausts. And, and, and many Jews were killed. And it all started with that act. And he's saying, okay, remember what Daniel said. This was a type of what was going to happen in the future. And so I believe that it's very clear in Scripture that this abomination of desolation is when a pig is going to be offered on the altar to Yahweh. Um, and let's uh, continue on from there. Verse 15, let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. 
And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. There's a sense of urgency. When you see that, run. Get out of there. Verse 17, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. Verse 20. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. For the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, here, uh, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise up and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all these things beforehand. Then one last paragraph, just a couple more verses. He says this, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and come together, or gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. If you didn't understand all of that, that's okay. We're going to walk through it in greater detail in Revelation. But understand this. What he's saying is that things are going to get bad. And then they're going to get worse. And then they're going to get as bad as they can be. And just when it seems like there's no hope left, Jesus is coming back. And he's restoring honor and glory and peace. And what we call in the Old Testament, shalom. That where everything is working the way that God has designed it. He's going to bring that back to earth. And so for us, that by knowing this ahead of time gives us the hope even in the times that are very difficult. So this is what John already knew. This is what, what John knew from, uh, from Jesus and his time of earth. And now he's been, uh, been given a glimpse of, of heaven and he's going to watch as they, uns they unseal the scroll that Daniel wrote with seven seals looking a little bit at, at what's going to happen in these seven waves of, uh, of punishment in the, in the tribulation. Now, I, w I don't want you to get lost as we go through these because we're, we're talking about seven seals, we'll be talking about seven trumpets, we'll be talking about seven bowls. So I want you to see how all of this relates. So if we could kind of do a, uh, an aerial view for a moment and kind of zoom out and look at, at what's going on, here's what we're gonna see. We're gonna find that there's seven seals and they're gonna happen sequentially from one to six and then the seventh one is prolonged. The seventh one is prolonged. You, you get through the first six seals, uh, you, get, you come to the seventh one, and you find out that the seventh seal actually is seven trumpets. Right? And then when you, get, you, you go start going through those seven trumpets, sequentially from one, you get to six, and guess what? The seventh one is prolonged. Why? Because those become the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out on mankind. And then you go through those as well. Um, you just looking at that, there's a couple of observations I'd like to make. A couple of things, just looking at how this is going to unfold. And this is going to carry us through most of the rest of the book of Revelation. When you look at this and you see how this, work, this works, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Number one, this creates a, a sense or a feeling of, of endlessness, doesn't it? I remember one time when I was coming home from Bible college and I had to come from Pennsylvania and uh, this probably dates me, but this is before GPSs were common, right? I had a little GPS or a hiking GPS. 
And uh, for, for those who were in high school or young, they didn't even have maps on them, right? So, it, it, so you'd have to do math and stuff like that to figure out how long it's gonna take. And I remember I had that GPS and, and it said that at my present rate of speed, or it's called velocity made good, was about eight hours from home. So that, that didn't seem too bad. I'm driving, I go about four hours, and then I do the math and it says that I'm about four hours from home. So that makes sense, right? That's good math. But right about that time, we hit some snow, right? And we hit that snow, it's mid-Pennsylvania, and, and uh, so we're traveling through the snow, and I'm, and I'm slowing down because of it, all the traffic's slowing down, and then I, I look at that a little bit later, and, and I look down, and you know what it says? It says I have eight hours left, right? That's how, much I, that's how many hours I had when I started the journey, right? And I had eight hours left, and, and uh, so, Okay, so I just keep driving, I'm plugging away, slowly but surely, and I get to about Cleveland, and the wind's coming through, and the snow, and it's slippery, and we have to slow way down. You know what was so depressing was looking down at that GPS and seeing eight hours again on my GPS. Like, I'm clean from Cleveland to Detroit, right? Eight hours, right? And uh, I ended up making it almost the whole way home that night. And uh, long night. But has anyone else ever had a night that just never seemed to end? Isn't that what we see the tribulation? The way God un unveils the tribulation, it's like you've got seven things you've got to go through. Okay, so you go through one, two, three, four, five, six, and you're thinking, we're almost done. We're almost through this, right? And then when he opens up number seven, he says, you get seven more things. You've got to be kidding me. So they go through the seven trumpets. One, two, three, four, five, six. Finally, we're almost done. Nope, seven bowls, right? Do you get that sense of endlessness to this? And that's good, too, because this is actually an act of mercy in a sense because God is teaching them the endlessness of judgment because if there's anything, you can go through the tribulation, but you know what? If you learn your lesson even in the tribulation, you can avoid the actual endless punishment, Right? And, and that the real punishment actually is endless. Second thing that I notice from this is, is that there's all, it's always number seven. There are always seven. Why? Because seven is the number that represents God. And I believe that God is saying very clearly, and he's, he's emphasizing the number seven here, so that they understand that the source of this judgment is really God. Because what you're going to find is that that people could try and ignore God and they could look at these and just say, this is just by chance. And there's calamities that we read about. There's corruption. There's, there's all sorts of things. And you could point to other things. And even though God is using those things, really the judgment comes from whom? Comes from God. And so these are divine punishments. And, uh, and then lastly, when you look at the first six of these seals, these are equivalent to what Jesus just calls labor pains. This is just, just getting started. So with that, let's take a look at the first uh, at the first seals here. In fact, what I'd like to do today, I'd like to cover the first four of the of the seven seals, if we can uh, do that. Now, the reason that I'd like to do four is because these four are grouped in the text because these four seals become the four horsemen. Have you ever heard of the four horsemen? Okay, two people, that's two of us, or three of us that have read the book of Revelation. Four of us have read the book of Revelation. Uh, no, the, the four horsemen, and that's what we're going to read about today. If you've never heard about them, you, uh, you, you will today. 
get to stay awake. And uh, we're going to talk about the four horsemen. And it's important to remember here, too, that from this point on, there's a lot of symbolism going on. And so we have to be very careful sometimes to over-define what things are. So let's make sure that we uh, keep the word maybe in our vocabulary where, where necessary, especially when we're interpreting uh, prophetic symbolism. With that, let's jump into Revelation 6, verse 1 and 2. Read this. Um, now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, um, and behold, a white horse, who, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Couple of observations here as we head into this, and, and and don't let it let your head spin. Just just follow me for a second here. When you look at this, um, you've got the four the four seals, and these become the four horsemen, right? And and I don't know how well you can see that picture from there, but these are the four horsemen. But not only is are they grouped together by the four horsemen, but the first four and only the first four um, of the seals are introduced by the four celestial creatures in heaven. Remember those four celestial creatures that we read about in the throne room in chapter 4? And so they're introduced by those four heavenly uh, creatures that we've read about so far already. Um, this is interesting because this is where we begin to see a parallelism between the forces of God and the forces of evil and the forces of Satan. And we start to see that there's a parallelism that that takes place as Satan is creating a counterfeit version of everything that God has done. By the way, that's not new. Satan has been doing counterfeits since the beginning, right? In fact, uh, when, when Moses did uh, perform the plagues, at the beginning, what did the, the Egyptian magicians do? They tried to replicate those things, as if they needed more frogs, right? or they needed more, uh, more blood. And, and the, and there's a, there, but they're counterfeits. Remember where Satan's coming from. And, and you don't have to turn there. I'll just put it up there quickly. But Isaiah chapter 14 is talking about Satan when he was called Lucifer in heaven. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the, the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Do you see what Satan actually wants? He wants what God has. He wants what belongs to God. Of course, we know how that, that passage ends. He says that, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. We know what the end is for him, but when we look at the attitude of him, I will be like the Most High. So what is he doing? He's creating a counterfeit image of what God created. And by the way, anytime you try to take something that belongs to God, it's always going to be a counterfeit. You can't take what belongs to God. So what I mean by this, we look at this and we see Satan's counterfeit hierarchy. We, we have the father, right, in the throne room. Well, now we have Satan, who is the head of his side of things. And then you have the son, or you have Jesus Christ, and Satan's going to have his antichrist. You have the Holy Spirit, Satan's going to have the beast, and we'll read about the beast a little bit later. Uh, God has his angels, and Satan has his demons. And God has these four incredible celestial creatures in heaven, and so Satan has his four horsemen. And you begin to see that there's this parallelism that goes on 
throughout the book of Revelation. So let's go back to verse 2 and look at that first horse. And I, I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So the first seal is the white horse. The white horse. A couple things to keep in mind. The horse in that day was, a, was the war machine of the day, right? That's the, that's the, the, uh, the war machine of the day. It would be like a tank of today. We have the, the horse of those days. But it's not just a horse. It's the white horse. Throughout Scripture, um, this is where we have to keep the word maybe in here, exactly what this represents. But throughout Scripture, white can represent victory. Uh, like the Roman conquerors would even ride a white horse in their victory parades. Mean purity as whiteness uh, rep re represents purity in scripture or holiness. Oftentimes it means peace. Um, that's even translated to some of the things we do today. Like if you raise a white flag, what does that mean? You're saying I'm done with war. Right? Let's let's have let's have a truce here. Let's let's have peace. Um, and so it's hard to know exactly which one it represents. My what I believe in context is that it's talking about peace here. I believe that what it's saying is that. This horse is going to come in the name of peace, but yet what we also find is that he's carrying a bow. So there's this, this, this tension between coming in peace and carrying a bow. Part of the reason I believe that is when we read the book of Daniel and we see the, the, first, the first Antichrist, which was Antiochus Epiphanes, and we look at the story there. He came in peace. He offers peace, but he also carries the bow. He also comes with the threat of war. But look what it says. It says, and he will be given a crown. What's that talking about? I think that's authority to rule. He's given authority to rule. In other words, we're talking about a political leader. So when things start to get bad, it always starts with politics, right? And, and so when things start to get really bad in the, in the, in the tribulational period, and as we're getting to the end, what we're going to find is, Things are going to get bad politically, and there's going to be a leader who's going to present himself as peaceful, but in reality, he's a violent person. He's coming with the threat of war. Not only that, it says that he came in conquering and to conquer. What I believe that means is that he had present, at that point, had present conquests, probably more political than, than military, but uh, he'll come in... It, it, with some, some past uh, conquests, but he's going to continue. He's, he's going to want to continue conquering. He has a mind to continue conquering. And in fact, it would, I would say it's a mind bent on world domination. If we were to put all this into one word, I would say the white horse, I think the, the idea is that there's going to be a conqueror, a conqueror who's coming. I believe this is the Antichrist. And that he will come in the name of peace, will carry the threat of war, and he will claim to finally bring peace to the Middle East, but his heart is bent on ruling the world. That's seal number one. Seal number two. Let's look at verse three and four. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it, went, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him great sword. So the second seal is a fiery red horse. A fiery red horse. You look at the word red and 
fiery red in the scripture, it's always a symbol of war or bloodshed. Right? War or bloodshed. And it says that he will take peace from the earth. The scope of this bloodshed is that it's going to take peace from the earth. In other words, no one is going to feel at peace. But this means this is going to be international in its scope. Now, it's not just a, a local thing going on. This is international. He will take peace from the earth. And was given to him a, a great sword. That's the idea that it's given him. I believe that that's saying he will be given authority to kill. So I believe you look at this and you say this. This person comes in with offering peace. And people will think that the only way to get to this peace is to allow this person to kill those who are, who are enemies of peace. I don't know about you, but that's a scary thought. First of all, the idea that you could, uh, you could achieve peace by killing people who disagree with you, that's the exact opposite of peace, is it not? But yet people will fall for this. And it's given to him. I mean, I believe that, thing, that means he, he, it will be voted on. People will want this. This is what people are going to, to desire. And I'll tell you what, there was a time where I thought, no way would, so, would someone vote for someone like that. But when you think about it, you, can re you realize that people aren't always that smart when it comes to voting. Right? I mean, would we all say that? that no, that the collective wisdom is, is, is not necessarily very smart. In fact, sometimes I'd say none of us are as dumb as all of us. Right? Isn't that true sometimes? And, and you look at that and say, wow, but yet this is something that it's going to be given to him the authority to kill. And that this is going to happen all around the world. There's going to be international conflict. If I were to put this into one word, I would use the word conflict. And so this conqueror is going to come in and it's going to create conflict. Look at verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. The third, the third horseman or the third uh, of the seals is the black horse. The black horse. In scripture, the word black uh, usually refers to something that is wicked or corrupt. It's evil. It's wicked. It's corrupt. It's dark. It's without understanding. And so we have this which makes sense in the context of the black horse here. What we find, too, is, is that, that this black horse is, is carrying uh, scales, a pair of scales. What does that mean? What were scales used for in those days? It was for commerce, right? To buy and sell, and this would be the price of, of a certain amount of things. So you would have a scale, you would weigh it, and so that way you knew that you were getting the amount of whatever you were purchasing for the, the appropriate price I believe that this is saying very clearly that this government is going to control commerce and the prices of commodities. And I'll tell you what, that's where real corruption can start to take place. Right? I remember I, breaking my eardrum underwater, in, in dirty water in Africa. By the way, I don't recommend doing that, right? I, I popped an eardrum underwater in dirty water in Africa. And so, of course, it got... It got infected, right? And so they were worried about whether or not I'd be able to fly a plane and all. So I had to get some strong antibiotics. And so I ended up going to a place there and I buy some strong antibiotics and, 
What's interesting is the same antibiotic I had at home, and where we had to pay $25 a pill, there is 25 cents a pill. Do you think that those, those companies lose money at 25 cents a pill? Absolutely not. So why do we pay $25 a pill? Because somebody's controlling the prices and they know they can get away with it. Right? They know they can get away with it. And you see that type of corruption taking place. And, and, uh, and so once, once the, a corrupt government starts controlling the prices of commodities, things get bad really fast. In fact, it goes on to say that, that there's a quart of wheat. By the way, the, a day's rations in those days was considered one quart of wheat, and, uh, and the price was for a, den a denarius, which is also a day's wage. So if you can imagine for a moment that just the amount of, of money it would cost you for your food for the day was an entire day's wage, uh, then what would you do about feeding your family? How about clothes? How about taxes? How about your... This is, we're talking about economic collapse. In fact, I um, was checking it out just to see what it would mean to the original readers. And, and the price that's mentioned here is 16 times higher than what it was in those days. So imagine if all of a sudden your buying power went down to 1 16th of what it was right now. I mean, how many of you would be able to live on half of what you make right now? Well, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm just asking you a rhetorical question. On half. And half of that? And then half of that? Impossible. Economic, total economic collapse. And then I, I think it's interesting too where it says, and do not harm, I think a better translation for the word harm there of the Greek, it's tamper. Do not tamper with. In other words, this, there's strict government control. Don't tamper with the prices. Government controls prices. You have to, you, the government's in control and you do that. By the way, we've seen governments attempt some of this and it's never been a positive thing. Never been a positive thing. Wait till it's done on a worldwide scale. So there's devaluation of money due to government corruption. If, I think if, uh, if I put one word on this, I would say corruption. There's corruption which leads to an economic collapse. Seal number four, verse seven. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So the, the fourth horseman is a pale horse. This pale horse. The word pale here in, in Greek is actually a, 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 a light shade of green. It's a, a form of, it's a pale green. In fact, usually this word is used in reference to one thing, and that is a dying corpse. So it's, it's a dying corpse, and, and that fits the context here. You have this pale horse. Why? Because who's riding in death and Hades, and some translations might say hell right there. It's talking about the same thing. But you get this imagery of, of a rotting corpse, and who's riding it? Death and Hades. By the way, I think he's talking about the two forms of judgment that right here, the judgment that happens to our body is called death, right? The judgment that happens to our soul is often called the second death. It's called second death in the book of Revelation, uh, but that's the, the eternal condemnation, 
is when we're cast into Hades or into hell. That's the judgment of the soul. And so we have death followed by Hades. That's not a pretty picture, is it? And who dies? The fourth of the earth. Think about that. One fourth of the earth. That's a major blow. And remember, we're still in the labor pains. Right here. A fourth of the earth. Gone. How? Well, through violence. Right? To kill with what? To kill with the sword. So there's going to be violence. To kill with hunger. Right? So there's economic disaster. It makes sense. People aren't going to have enough. People are going to die of hunger. When it says to death, it, it's not the way we would talk in English. We don't say you kill with death. But the idea here is that it's a natural death. In, in other words, uh, you're dying from a disease or something like that. Not dying from a sword. Or, but you, you die from some kind of disease. Or by the beasts of the earth. And to, and we get to the point where and you think right now, that's the last thing we're really worried about. Unless you go out into the middle of the woods, unless you go somewhere where there's, there's beasts. We don't even think about that anymore. But things are going to get so bad that the beasts are going to work their way up the chain. And we might not always be at the top of the chain anymore. Think about that. And, and so we, and all of these. If I were to put one word to describe all of that, I would use the word calamities. There's going to be calamities. This doesn't necessarily paint a pretty picture of the future. But remember, that's what Jesus was talking about. This doesn't paint a pretty picture. Let's put this all together. When we look at these four horsemen, here's what we know and, and, uh, and what it looks like is, is going to take place. Number one, a conqueror, the Antichrist, is going to come in the name of peace. But he is intent on world domination. And this is going to spark worldwide conflict. There we have the conflict. We're in attempts to bring peace. The conqueror or the Antichrist will be given permission to kill. Then as the world moves towards this one world government, governments will control commerce and the corruption will result in economic collapse. And then at which point calamities are going to claim the lives of a fourth of the world's population. And these are just labor pains. Thank you, Pastor Dave, for encouraging me today. <laughs> right? Thank you for, for doing that, and, and now we can all go out on a high note, right? And how uplifting. But sometimes that's not the response that we need, right? And I believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. I believe that's the case here too, right? Don't you? So how do we respond? How should we respond to all this? And I think the application to this is the same thing that Jesus told them back in Mark 13. But I'll reread uh, verse 9. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to, be, or up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. First response, I would say, is very simple, is expect persecution to increase as we get closer to the end. That's the bad news, right? There's some good news here. But that's the bad news. Expect persecution to increase as we get closer to the end. And, and it's, we're starting to see that, aren't we? 
where if you're the Christian, in fact, uh, just not last night, because last night we went to see the Titanic, the, uh, the play that a lot of the kids from our church were involved in. They, by the way, they did a great job. They're probably not in here because they were up really late last night. But, um, but two nights ago, uh, Monica and I decided to watch a show that we'd never seen before. And, and uh, it was just, it's a British uh, series on, and uh, like a murder mystery kind of thing. And there's a, there's a Catholic priest in it, and then there was a Protestant pastor that, that, he, that he talked to. And I said to my wife, I said, I don't know who's going to die, but I know who the killer is. And, she, and she's like, how do you know who the killer is? It's the Protestant, it's the pastor. It's, of course it's the pastor, right? You know it. And sure enough, then the, this, this person dies, and they've got all these reasons why it should be everybody else. And, but sure enough, you find out it is the pastor, right? It's, it, it's the pastor. And, and so why? Um, why is that the case? Because the, the world is starting to move in the direction to where they've got to make it okay to make us the enemy. Because we're going to be hated in the end. Not for our own testimonies. We're going to be hated because we are testimonies of Jesus Christ. And they're going to hate us because they hate him. And as you see the world move in that direction, that should not surprise us. And, and, and you see it, it's easy to just get, throw our hands up and, and, and fall into despair, but don't despair. This is what Jesus said would happen. So this is the normal to expect the persecution to increase as we get closer to the end. But the very next thing he said in verse 10 is this. He said, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. He says that in the same breath. In Greek, it's even in the same sentence as all of that, what he had just said about the persecution. And, and he says, the gospel has to be preached. Application number two. Expect persecution to increase as we get closer to the end, but keep preaching the gospel anyway. That's it. I mean, keep preaching the gospel anyway. It doesn't matter. God is going to use that persecution as a testimony of himself. And, and he, there are still some of those, uh, we call them the, the elect. There are those out there, and God is going to use you, and he's going to use me, and he's going to use others to reach those, for, those people for Jesus Christ. You say, well, this still doesn't sound, where's the uplifting part, Pastor Dave? Where's, where's that come up? I mean, well, why, why should we keep preaching the gospel anyway? Why shouldn't we just avoid death by not claiming to be Christians? Why shouldn't, we, why shouldn't we just do that? I think the answer is in the same context when Jesus said in verse 13, And you'll be hated for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Who's he talking about there? Who endures to the end? That's us. I don't think that what, that what Jesus was saying was, if you can make it to the end, you'll be saved. If you can survive, the, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, we already know who survives. He's saying, the one who survives in the end, that's the one who gets saved. Who survives in the end? Us. Our persecutors do not survive in the end. Those who make fun of you, those who beat you, those who kill you, those who turn you in so that you can be, uh, go through the, the next inquisition, and you, you could lose your life or your freedom, those people don't survive in the end. Who endures in the end? Because really, what, what you're going to find is that this, these tribulations are so bad 
no one really survives unless they're one of God's chosen. Only his endure to the end. And I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, but that gives, that gives me some courage because, yeah, I might go through some difficult things, but even if they take my life, I have a soul that's going to go on forever, and I have a God who's going to put back my, my body in a way that's much better than this one. I got sick this week. Had to take a day off of, of work. It's not good. My new body won't have that. This body is working closer, getting closer and closer to death every day. Not that one. Because I'll have one that endures in the end. And I think what, what Jesus is saying here is, yes, things are going to get bad, and I'm not going to hide it from you. You need to know it. And in fact, when things, when things get bad, they're just getting started. But you know what? Fast forward to the end, things are going to be all right. And when you do that, now you can live and you can preach the gospel with boldness. Just get out there and preach it anyway. You don't have to worry what to say. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. Just get, get out there with boldness and preach the truth. It reminds me of in college, I used to do Civil War reenacting. And, and so we would do all this training and we'd, we'd learn how to shoot these muskets and and, and I remember one time we were, in, we were in Gettysburg and we've got this big battle, we're reenacting this battle and there are cannons going off and the smoke going, I mean, it's really cool, right? And smoke going across fields and, 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 and I'm shooting muskets and, and, and we're doing everything except for the bullets, right? Um, and it's, and it's, it seems very real. And I enjoyed it. Why? Because I already knew in the end I wasn't going to die, Right? Because to me, knowing the end made all the difference in the world. Because if I, try, if I even tried to imagine what it was like for some college-age kid in the actual Civil War, and these cannons are shooting at an enemy that keeps coming at, at us unrelentingly, then I, I would not be enjoying that moment. I'd be scared to death. But knowing, hey, this has already been planned out, I know where it's going to end. I know where I'm going to be. In fact, I even know where I'm going to eat lunch with my friends afterwards. Makes all the difference. I think that's what this is saying for us today, too. Well, things are going to be bad. I mean, cannons are going to be going off, right? There's going to be muskets going off. There's going to be smoke. You're going to see unrelenting enemies coming at you. But what we really need to know is that in the end, everything's good. We win in the end. And Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to restore shalom back to the earth. I don't know about you, but that is an encouragement. I would also say that if there's anyone here today that say, you know what? I've kind of pushed off this whole Christianity thing, living life, this whole salvation. I've been pushing that off. Because I, I don't think it's so bad. I want you to know that everything in here and worse, we'll talk about it in, in, in weeks to come. It's going to happen. Jesus said it would happen. And Jesus doesn't get his predictions wrong. Never has. Never will. Because he controls the future. And I'll tell you right now, if there's anyone in here that has not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're on the wrong end of this story. You're on the wrong end of this story. 
You might think, oh, I can get through by just denouncing Christ. Doesn't work in the end. The punishment will reach everyone. And so I would encourage you, humble yourself today. Accept Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. I would just like to ask, is there anyone in here who would like to say, would be willing to say, Pastor Dave, I've never accepted Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. Would you just raise your hand? Would you just raise your hand? If you would like to make that decision today, I would invite you to come and talk to me. In just a few moments, we're going we're gonna to celebrate communion together. In fact, at this time, I'll even ask the deacons to start making their way to the front as, as we're going to prepare for communion. But as we do, I want you to know, I, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that decision is the most important thing you could do. And I invite you to come and talk to me right after the service. And I would love to share with you from God's Word how you can know for sure that you have eternal life. I want to speak to, to those of you who didn't raise your hand. Those of you who say, I know for sure, beyond a shadow of doubt, that I'm saved. Reason that we can have a hope in the future is because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. In just a moment, we're going to partake of communion, and I want you to reflect on the fact that communion exists for two purposes. One, it's for us to look backwards, and the other is for us to look forwards. It's for us to look backwards and to, and to look at what Jesus Christ did in the past, and, and that's why the, the, the cup represents his blood, and the, and the bread represents his body that was broken for us, and we look back at that. And then at the last thing that we're told, Jesus says, do this until I come again. We're to do this looking forward to that day when Jesus comes again. And this is a statement of faith for us saying, we believe that everything Jesus said about coming back is true. And we believe he's coming back. And that's where our focus should be. Not so much on the persecution that we'll be receiving. But when we go through that persecution, to be focused on the end when Jesus who did die on the cross, who did give his body for us, will come back in his glorified body and will raise us up to him. And so today is also a source of hope for us. Let's pray as we, as we move into our communion service. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the things that you teach us in it. Lord, some, sometimes there are hard lessons. Sometimes there's difficult things to hear, but we know that you are good and truthful, God, and that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for us, and we thank you and we praise you for it. Lord, I pray that as we take advantage of this opportunity right now, as we partake in communion together, I pray, Lord, that we would make sure that there is no obstacle between you and us. Pray, Lord, that this would be a, a good spiritual checkup for us. That we could all leave, out, leave this building today knowing that we're right with you. And that we will endure in the end. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about, about communion. And he said this, that Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the blood or the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man first examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Important words in light of the context of what we're talking about today. He's saying, when you come together here, make sure you're doing it. Not in an unworthy manner. Make, make sure and be praying. And as we pass out the cup, take advantage of that time to think about and, and just talk with the Lord and commune with the Lord and say, God, show me anything in my heart that needs to be confessed. And you confess that to the Lord right here, right now, so that you can partake of the, of the, of the, the cup and the bread in a worthy manner. And so, it, it, so I would encourage you not to just sit and wait during those times, but let that be a time of communion between you and the Lord. And so as we distribute the bread and the cup, take time to reflect on, on where you are in your relationship to God. And if, and if you need to repent of anything, do that at this point. This point of, we're going to distribute the elements.
Later on in that same passage, Paul wrote these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me Isn't it an awesome feeling to know that all is the sins that you've committed, that you've confessed to the Lord, are gone? What a blessing that is. To know that you're right with the Lord and you don't have to hold any shame or any guilt towards those things. I love the, I love the imagery that, that, uh, that we hear in Scripture. Our sins are separated from us as east is to the west. If you went north to south, you could still measure that distance. You can go east forever and you can go west forever. And that's the distance from of us to our and our sins. Thanks to Jesus Christ. Amen. What a great thing. One of the things we like to do, it's a tradition, tradition that we have here at HBC, is that when we have communion, and, uh, that we also have an opportunity to take an extra offering, not for the church, but this is just an offering that what we call the benevolence offering. What we do is when we find that there are some needs, maybe there are some people even in the congregation or, or someone that you know that is going through a very difficult time, and there may be a financial need, then we take from the benevolence uh, funds uh, that we collect during the communions, and uh, and we have a benevolence committee. It's a, a group of men on the deacon board that they they are in charge of, of distributing those funds. I remind you this for two reasons. Number one, if you have a need, or if you know someone that has a need, then to let us know, and we'll have we'll we'll pass that on to the benevolence committee, and uh, and they can take help take care of some of those needs. Also, it's a form of communion for us too, because. Not only then do we commune with the Lord, but this gives us an opportunity. If you're doing well and you have a little bit extra at the moment, then you can give that and you'll know that it's going towards someone that has a specific need. If you're the person that has need, then you let us know and we can meet that need. And so that none of this goes towards the, uh, towards the budget for the, the ministries of the church or pay raises or anything like that. It just This is all for a chance for us to help each other and bring unity amongst amongst ourselves. Does that make sense? And so uh, with that in mind, I'd like to pray for the benevolence offering, and we'll ask the deacons to, to collect that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. You've given us so much. And Lord, I pray that if there's any in here that has a need, that we would know it, that we would learn of it, and we'd be able to meet those needs. 
And in so doing, we would show the world what it means to love each other and that they would know that we are Christians. They will know that we're followers of Christ by the way we love each other. I pray you would bless this offering.